This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Andrew Clyden and I'm joined today by Miles Danhausen, writer and editor for The Pulse. How's it going, Miles? It's going good, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, last week when we talked on The Pulse, we had an interview with Amanda Stuck, one of the candidates for the 8th Congressional District. And today we have an interview with Mike Gallagher that we're going to jump into, uh, an interview that you did with him. So we'll uh, we'll load that up here next for you. But before we did, Miles, last weekend was, or normally would have been, Fall Fest weekend. Of course, Fall Fest didn't happen, but uh, what what was the weekend like? You were up there in Sister Bay. Did, did we have the same amount of people who were just, you know, crowding the streets up there? Or was it a little bit different vibe without the festival? Um, as a longtime lover of Fall Fest, it was moderately depressing. Um, kind of bummed me out. You know, I, I just love the party. I like seeing all these friends back in town. And this weekend, it was none of that. It was, I shouldn't say none. It was crowded. It was busy in Sister Bay, but you know the road was open to traffic. Uh, There's a line up the hill coming down into Sister Bay. Uh, there were a fair number of people out and about, but probably comparable to like a normal summer or fall weekend. Um, maybe even a little less so because it was rainy and windy and um, a little bit chilly. So I, I strolled through town and checked out things, talked to a few of the restaurant owners and employees working the weekend. And one told me like, eh, I kind of feel like we, we dodged a bullet here. And I didn't know what they meant, but as we talked a little more, they basically like, you know, it wasn't dodgeable in a couple of ways. One, the weather wasn't so terrible that it was just an awful weekend business-wise. On the other hand, it wasn't so nice that people were overwhelmed and in the midst of a time when cases are going up, like anytime you see a crowd, you might think, oh no, is this gonna be something that ends up spreading cases? I think it was damped down enough that the crowds just didn't form, at least outside. I didn't go inside any restaurants. I don't know what it looked like um, in the evenings at the bars and things like that. But um, the other thing that the the business owners told me is like, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to being done. I'm just looking forward to it being over. Right, yeah, I feel like you know, on top of this being a relatively busy season anyway, with the the COVID-19 fears and that type of stuff going on, I feel like this is a season that in particularly was weighing on business owners and, and service industry workers and that kind of stuff, even more so than normal. Like if this had been a normal year, but we still had the number of people up here, yeah, it would have been tough. But I think it, it all kind of compounds physically and mentally, definitely, as you as you go through this season. So uh, I, I, I totally sympathize with, with that, with just one wanting to kind of quiet down a little bit more, get through this winter, and then try to open back up next year, hopefully in a different spot. Uh, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. Was there any sort of, you know, hell or high water celebrations going on? Was there an amateur parade or anything? Anything happen in that way? Or did people just kind of, you know, stay stay put without the, the good weather? Only the parade of cars coming down the hill. Um, but no, no, nothing... Nothing too crazy. Even uh, stopped to do my normal grocery shopping at the Piggly Wiggly on Friday night. And normally I would never do that on Friday of Fall Fest or I'd try to go like Friday at 7 a.m. and just get in and out of there before the, the hordes came in. Um, and it was, you know, it was a little busier, but nothing crazy. So um, everything was pretty well under control. Probably um, the fears that a lot of us had and a lot of the business owners had that I talked to leading up to the to October um, we're basically like, what if we have a beautiful fall weekend on either fall fest or pumpkin patch and you know, it's 65 degrees. What are we going to do? Like those kind of crowds that would come up, but that, that didn't materialize because of the weather. So kind of right. helped everybody out and it was pretty windy so that in sister Bay, if it's windy in an October day, it brings a pretty cold breeze off the lake. Right. You know, this, this fall has been really interesting because last fall, like, like I've talked about a couple of times on the podcast, we had some really bad storms right away in the beginning, just before the leaves started to change. And that really knocked a ton of them off the trees. So we had a pretty depressing fall last year. This year, the weather's been pretty gloomy and cold, but the colors were really great and they're, they're still out. 
So we, we've had a nice long fall color season, even though the weather has been kind of morose. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. It still looks great up, especially like inland. I drove through the park this weekend. Uh, those inland roads are, you know, the, those those leaves are a little protected. So it's really pretty on the, like, say, Skyline Drive and stuff in Peninsula State Park. Great. Well, why don't we jump into this interview? Uh, like I mentioned earlier, last week on the podcast, we had Amanda Stuck. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I, I highly recommend checking that out. So we're going to jump into our interview here with Mike Gallagher. Miles, is there anything that people need to know before we jump in? Uh, yeah, it, it was an interesting discussion. I managed to steal uh, a lot of time away from the congressman, which I appreciate it. And um, he did go into a, a fair amount of depth. He's an interesting guy to talk to. Obviously been in for a couple of terms I guess you would probably call him a, a bit of a policy wonk. He gets into the weeds, into the details a little bit. Um, and we tried to touch on a bunch of different topics. So it was, you know, at this time of year, you're trying to give voters uh, as broad a, a look at a candidate as you can in whatever space, in, in the case of print, in whatever print space you have. And in the case of a podcast, whatever time limits you have. So Sometimes I, there were probably a couple of topics I, I could have talked to him probably for an hour about, but in the interest of giving people some perspective on a few different topics, just had to move it along. So in some of these, I would think most listeners would, would probably wish that we had gone a little farther and dug a little deeper, but uh, to try and get it all in, in about 40 minutes, we moved on. But I think you'll get at least a little taste of, just like with the podcast with Amanda Stuck last week, a little taste of who the candidate is, where they come from. And then uh, at least a glimpse at their take on a few of the topics. And that's what we try to do with uh, Congressman Gallagher. So, um, again, if you haven't listened to the Amanda Stuck one, I encourage you to listen to that one from last week as well. And um, hopefully it, it gives people a little more information before they go to the voting booth if they haven't voted already. Great. Well, Miles, thank you so much for chatting with me. And we will jump into that interview with Mike Gallagher right now. Joining us today on the Door County Pulse podcast is Congressman Mike Gallagher, who has represented the 8th Congressional District since 2016. Good morning, Congressman Gallagher. Welcome back to the podcast. It is an honor to be back, Miles. Why don't we start by having you just give us a little bit of taste of who you are, what your background is for those voters in Door and Kiwanee County that are unfamiliar with you. A lot of people are familiar, but maybe there are some people out there who don't know a little bit about your backstory. So um, here's one part where I will ask you to do it in a couple minutes. Okay. <laughs> well, I, uh, I'm from Green Bay, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, my family has been here for a long time. Uh, those of you who have had a child in Northeast Wisconsin, uh, as you have recently, Miles, congratulations. Thank you. Um, and congratulations to you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Probably know my family because they're all uh, OBs who deliver babies and have delivered over 30,000 babies. And uh, a couple decades ago, my dad started a pizza restaurant called Gallagher's Pizza. So that's my family, big Irish Catholic family in Northeast Wisconsin. I went down a different path with my life. Uh, did not want to go into medicine or pizza and uh, joined the Marine Corps after college, did that for seven years, deployed a few times to Iraq, um, worked in the intelligence community, worked on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, came back home to Wisconsin to work for Governor Walker as his national security guy when he ran for president, and then moved back to Green Bay. I uh, used my GI Bill to kind of finish my grad school and was really just planning to teach at UWGB and work uh, in the private sector at a company called Break Your Fuel in Green Bay when our congressman unexpectedly retired, Reed Ribble. And so uh, some people reached out to me to see if I would run. And quite honestly, Miles, my first reaction was no. You know, I was kind of the guy behind the scenes, never thought about being on camera or running for office myself. But the more I thought about it, the more, you know, here I was writing articles, criticizing the direction of our foreign policy, concerned about the future of our country. And I thought I better step up and, and put my money where my mouth is. And, um, you know, did it and uh, managed to win. And now I'm in my second term in Congress. I serve on the Armed Services Committee, the Transportation Committee. And for the last year, I've chaired a special commission on U.S. cyber policy with an independent senator from Maine named Angus King. And so it's just been an absolute honor. I mean, even in a very divided political environment, the chance to work on serious issues, work across the aisle, uh, make progress for Northeast Wisconsin has really been um, an honor of a lifetime. Um, backtracking just a little bit there, I, I know you went to Princeton and I think Georgetown, if I have that correct. What, yes. what made you go into the military? Well, I, I went to college without any clue as to what I wanted to do with my life. I was, I think my first year, a, a Latin American studies major, which was basically a scam to get a, uh, 
a scholarship from the Spanish department, which I then used to go work at a, an all-inclusive resort in Cancun the summer after my uh, freshman year, uh, studying my Spanish. So it took me a while to understand what I wanted to do with my life, let's say. And part of the reason we were talking before this, I started a podcast was to, you know, kind of get young kids in Northeast Wisconsin interested in foreign policy. Because for me, when I came back and I finally got serious about my studies, I started studying Arabic in the Middle East and 9-11 had happened when I was a senior in high school. And I kind of started to think, okay, I just started to ask these higher order questions of why are we at war? What is our country getting involved in the Middle East? And trying to connect those dots to Northeast Wisconsin, which then led me to think, okay, what is my part to play in this? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized how lucky I was to be an American, how lucky I was to grow up in that family I mentioned here in Northeast Wisconsin. I felt like I had a debt I needed to repay to this community and this country. And I wanted to use the language skills I was learning. I was studying Arabic. I wanted to use the cultural and regional skills I was learning about the Middle East. And I wanted them to put them, I wanted to put those to use in service to my country. And the final part of it was I wanted a challenge, right? I, I wanted something that would combine an intellectual challenge with a leadership challenge, which is really a moral challenge, with a physical challenge. And I didn't know of a better opportunity to do that than the United States Marine Corps. I wanted to really test myself and see what I was made of. And uh, so notwithstanding the fact that it took me a while uh, to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, um, it really was the best decision I ever made. And I just would encourage young kids in Northeast Wisconsin, if they're interested in service, it is a it is an incredibly rewarding path. It doesn't have to be military. It can be State Department, intelligence community, nonprofits. But I, I just really had an amazing experience. Uh, last week, we had your challenger, Amanda Stuck, on the podcast. And um, I asked her, what does being, her experience being a single mom at 19, how does that impact you when you come to the floor of of the assembly in her case. Um, and then what would that bring to Congress in your case, you know, that military background, what is that? How does that inform you when you're representing people, when you're having discussions with other congressmen and when you're on the floor in, in the house? Well, I think there's a few things. The first is what I call the Lance corporal test. And by that, I mean, if you've ever been at the tip of the spear, if you've been deployed in a combat zone, if you've been privileged to lead young Marines in combat, you understand things can get pretty difficult pretty quickly. And so whenever I find myself in a position where I'm voting on legislation or designing legislation or doing oversight, I try and think about it through the lens of that 19-year-old Lance Corporal who's out there in Iraq or Afghanistan. He's going to have to deal with the dangerous implication of decisions that are made in air-conditioned offices in Washington, D.C. And I think it's important that we have people that have been at the tip of the spear so that we can have better policies, we can avoid unintended consequences, and we can give those kids, a lot of whom are signing up to serve from Northeast Wisconsin, the tools that they need to get the job done and come home safe. The second thing I'd say is the reason I am so excited about a new generation of veterans on both sides of the aisle stepping up to serve in Congress is I think that you, if you serve, you've demonstrated the ability to put the interest of the country ahead of your own narrow parochial and political interests. And what the military teaches everybody is how to get a difficult job done by working together. And that's the ethos I try and bring to Congress every single day. And I think young veterans in Congress are more willing to reach across the aisle, take political risk, and just do what's necessary and what's right for the good of the country. And so that's why it's so important that we have people from all different walks of life. And that's why I'm such a strong proponent of things like term limits, because we shouldn't have people that have only been in politics their whole life that stay there for 40 years. That's how we get uh, the status quo in D.C., which isn't serving anyone of either party well. Um, I want to come back to, to term, limits, term limits and congressional reform. Um, but the first thing on everyone's mind right now is COVID-19, our response to coronavirus, how we get past this. Um, in your mind, has the federal response to COVID-19 been adequate? And what do you wish as a country um, we had done differently? Or that what do you think that Congress could have done, if anything? Well, let me take a second to talk about the local response. I think across Northeast Wisconsin, and particularly where you are, Miles, in, in Door County, uh, the response has been amazing. Our un unsung heroes in our hospital system, uh, Door County Medical Center, at the beginning of this crisis, I, I really was worried about Door County just for the nature of a lot of the businesses up there. But it seems like with a combination of vigilance by local businesses, creativity with businesses, 
um, you know, taking it seriously, but finding a way to stay open and serve their customers and just the heroism of the health department and the medical system. Uh, York County's done a phenomenal job weathering a once-in-a-generation crisis. And I would say the same for even counties that have been hit harder, like Brown County, my home county. Uh, you know, my wife had a baby in the midst of this pandemic, and just watching the nurses and the doctors take exceptional care of her and my baby daughter while dealing with this crazy pandemic just made me grateful for their sacrifice. Mm-hmm. At the federal at the federal level, I would say let's separate into defense and offense. Defense in terms of slowing the spread of the virus, I think we've been mediocre at best, uh, doing owing to a combination of things. I think we made the right call in January uh, to shut down travel from China to buy us time. I was the first member of the House of Representatives who warned about this and who said that we weren't being aggressive enough at the time the week after Fauci went out there and said there was nothing to worry about. Um, But then we wasted that time in February with a testing debacle that we saw at the CDC's main lab in Georgia, and we lost valuable time. And I think here at the state level, clearly in March, uh, the governor did not make a serious effort to get on the same page with the legislature and come up with a joint plan where we could have avoided some of this. So I think it's been a mixed bag, death per capita per million. We probably rank right in the middle of advanced European countries by comparison as a result. But on offense, I think we've actually had the best or the second best response in the entire world. We have one of the most promising therapeutics right now. And I think we are winning the vaccine race. Obviously, it's still to be determined when a vaccine is going to be coming out. But in terms of the treatments in the vaccine, we'll need to ultimately defeat this disease. I actually think we've had the best response in the world. Um, but that's why it's important to have a, a partnership between the public health sector and the private sector. And that's really our strength relative to uh, our adversary states like communist China. They're very good at top down. America is at its best when it does bottom up. But that means it's incumbent upon every American to take simple steps like wearing a mask, washing your hands, social distancing, things like that. And that's where we've been challenged, quite frankly, to all get on the same page. Um, you mentioned the the Wisconsin legislature and the governor getting on the same page. Um, the Wisconsin legislature to date still has not put forward any plan, an alternative to what the governor has, has put forward. Um, in talking to a lot of those unsung heroes locally, uh, what I hear from people on both sides of the aisle politically, um, business leader after business leader saying, just give us more guidance. Um, why is this yeah. all falling on our shoulders? Why am I the sole proprietor restaurateur trying to manage a pandemic that's a global scale? Why isn't Congress, why isn't the legislature um, and the state giving me more guidance and more tools to fix this other than saying I'm supposed to close my doors because I don't have enough employees because a bunch of people got sick. So is there more that Congress could do to help these people and not leave it on their shoulder? Yes. I think one thing we could immediately do is reconvene Congress. We are in recess right now. We've been in recess the entire month of October. We're not scheduled to be back until mid-November. We should be there working. I understand people have to campaign and want to get reelected, but this is far more important than that. I suspended my campaign for three months uh, when this thing started uh, in the spring in order to focus solely on supporting the state and getting federal resources to the state and getting 100,000 masks donated from Taiwan to the state of Wisconsin. So that's one thing. The second thing Congress can do to help the state right now is to take $135 billion that's just sitting there. It's already been appropriated. We don't need a new bill in PPP funding extend eligibility for all of our small businesses in Door County and around Northeast Wisconsin that are struggling to survive right now, get them access to that money. We saved about a million jobs in Wisconsin with the PPP program prior to this. I think we can save many more if we activate that money rather than waiting for some $5 trillion fix. And as for a broader grant bargain, the third thing, I'm open to it. I'm open to some form of liability protections for nonprofit schools and hospitals that want to reopen responsibly but don't want to get sued by an opportunistic trial lawyer in return for targeted assistance to our schools and our hospitals. The problem is what we've seen is that when all the assistance has to go through the governor's office, we still have counties that have not gotten the money that have been promised. We have local schools that have gotten money taken away by local educational authorities. And as far as guidance, we know the DPI has not provided guidance to our local school districts. They're having to come up with their own dating criteria to figure out uh, when they are reopening their schools. And so I really think it has to be a better partnership between the federal, the state, and the local government. And what concerns me right now is that we just have people playing uh, the blame game, right, to avoid responsibility. Uh, I think we should all put that aside and let's just work together to figure out how we can help Northeast Wisconsin's crisis. Um, 
and we could we could talk about COVID-19 for hours. I wish we could. But uh, moving on to congressional reform, it's something that you made uh, a big point of right after you entered Congress. Um, that must have been fun conversation to have after you had an article published in The Atlantic um, about how to fix Congress as a freshman congressman. I'm sure that went over really well. Um, but some of those key points you've talked about is limiting time in Congress, both Senate and the House, to 12 years, um, ban on lobbying for five years, and changing the congressional schedule to limit fundraising. These are all topics that like probably term limits it's an easily accessible one for most voters but most people probably don't really understand how the lobbying thing works don't understand how the congressional schedule works um how how has that gone over amongst your colleagues and some of those ideas and how hard is it to actually get anyone on board with reforming their own job well that when i published the article i think it's fair to say that i did not make many friends among congressional leadership but i did have a lot of my colleagues sort of secretly come up to me and whisper hey you're right this place needs to change and i do think that it's changing in terms of the younger members demanding reform. And I think the American people demanding reform. And the fact is, for all the complaints about a lack of bipartisanship, the problem is there's a bipartisan agreement right now on maintaining the broken, corrupt, sclerotic status quo where nothing changes. And so I think it's only a matter of time before these reforms actually happen. And to take them in reverse order on changing the schedule, uh, I've worked with my friend and, and progressive Wisconsin Democrat, Mark Pocan, on that very issue. And we're trying to do it right now. He's on a select committee to reform Congress where they're proposing a schedule change because people don't realize even the weeks we're in session, usually they fly in on a Tuesday and then you fly out on a Thursday. So it's at most a three-day work week and we need to stay there. We need to be doing oversight. We need to be debating, legislating, compromising for there to be productivity in Congress. That's point one. On the lobbying reform issue, that's an opportunity for strange bedfellows to come together because even someone as uh, that I disagree with on almost every other issue like AOC has expressed positive support for my bill on lobbying reform. And the fact is we've had high level former executive branch officials and former senators lobbying on behalf of Chinese companies that are seeking to destroy American companies. That's wrong. That's swampiness at its worst. And I just don't think that time in federal office should be a stepping stone for getting rich and uh, monetizing your experience. So that to me is, is just an easy layup for people that are serious about reforming government. And then kind of on the final issue, that's more difficult. Term limits, I went with a progressive colleague of mine, Ro Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley, to the White House. And to his credit, he was willing to meet with President Trump. We asked, we asked President Trump uh, for his blessing on our, our term limits bill or his support, and, uh, and he did uh, tweet in support of it. This marks the, the only time in recorded history a, a Democrat was encouraging President Trump to tweet. Uh, but then leadership, uh, both on the Democrat and Republican side, uh, just tanked our bill. And so uh, we're trying to figure out how we revive the argument on term limits. And I know there are people that oppose it, but you know, that's the best way I've found to get new blood in Congress, get new ideas in Congress and to get get away from this careerism that really, I think, is infecting our politics and has taken us away from the model of servant leadership and citizen legislator that our, our framers and founders had in mind when they when they founded this country. You mentioned leadership. Uh, just to give our listeners a rundown, uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, is 80. She's been in Congress for 33 years. Mitch McConnell has been in the Senate for 36 years. He's 78. Kevin McCarthy for 13 years. He's 55. Chuck Schumer, 39 years between the Senate and the House. He's 69. John Cornyn, uh, in a, seeking his fourth term in the Senate, he's 68. Uh, Chuck Grassley, 40 years in the Senate, six in the House. He's 87. And Steny Hoyer at 81 is 40 years in Congress. That's the top leadership of our country in Congress right now. Um, all of those people, by your 12-year limit, would be out of office right now. Um, yes. So there's a pretty good explanation of why it's not getting anywhere with leadership. Um, as for the... Well, when you put it that way, now I understand why they all leadership hates me right now. So <laughs> um, I'm guessing they don't hate you. Uh, <laughs> the but they probably don't like that idea. Ban on lobbying for five years. Why not for life? Why do congressmen need to go into Congress and have the option to then lobby it at any point? Uh, I am more than open to. In fact, I, I enthusiastically endorse a lifetime uh, ban on lobbying for members. We did it to five years to align with. Uh, what the president had called for in his Drain the Swamp speech in 2016 to try and get his support and bring more people along. I think there should be a lifetime ban on lobbying for 
uh, former members if they want to lobby for foreign countries and countries that are controlled by a state entity like uh, Chinese Communist Party controlled telecommunications companies. So in my ideal world, we would have a lifetime ban on lobbying, but we did it to five years to kind of extend the cooling off period and potentially bring more people on uh, to the bill. Um, and then in terms of term limits, on the flip side, it, it's something that most people would say like, oh, yeah, we should have term limits. That, I don't want them in office forever. But on the other side, in any other job, you'd say experience counts. I want you to get good at your job. And then over time, you get better and better at it. You should know the workings of Congress better. You should have better connections. You should know better experts. And you should be able to wield power, a Lyndon Johnson or a Ted Kennedy or a Mitch McConnell. Um Obviously, they're very effective once they get older. I don't know if that's effective for everybody else. Why Why in Congress should there be term limits when you probably wouldn't ask that in maybe any other job except a professional sports coach? Well, experience does matter, but it was the whole idea of the citizen legislator was that you would take your experience in the real world, whether you were a military officer or a teacher or a business person or a doctor and apply that experience to government. We don't want a professional political class that over time just loses touch with the demands of the real world. And more to the point, the people that have been there for 30, 40 years, what is their ultimate experience? What have they proven they're good at? They're good at campaigning and getting elected. And their fundamental experience is in constant fundraising and running elections. And they spend very little time on the actual substance of legislating. And to prove that that's true, just do a little experiment. Turn on C-SPAN. And I mean, if you're having trouble sleeping, this will this will help you with that. You'll And if they're, they're showing the House floor, I guarantee you what you'll see is someone giving a speech to an empty House chamber or even in a committee hearing, someone just reading off a piece of paper that their staff has written for them, and no one is actually attending the hearing or the House chamber because they're just trying to get the soundbite or the TV clip so that they can then use that and run across the street and raise more money, which is also why I introduced a bill that would prohibit the ability of members of Congress to raise money while Congress is in session, to force the members of Congress to focus on legislating and not getting reelected. So I guess I understand part of the argument for um, experience, but in my mind, 12 years and possibly 24, if you do the House and the Senate, is more than enough time to learn how the place works and how to do legislation. And if you can't figure it out in 12 years, well, then perhaps you shouldn't be serving in Congress to begin with. So do you think you'll be able to reform Congress within 12 years? I think if you look at the history of congressional reform, you know, we had a period of reform in the 40s, actually led by Wisconsinite, La Follette, the younger La Follette. We had a period, the Watergate babies in the 70s, and then when the Republicans took control in the 90s, they did the contract with America. All mixed bag in, in terms of the actual reforms, but they all have one thing in common. Frustration built up among the American people until legislators could no longer ignore it, or they were sent into office and control of Congress changed because they promised to reform. And I think we're nearing that point now. When Congress has a 10% approval rating, I mean, it's hard to get much lower than that. And I think the American people are going to demand reform. So, yes, I think it's possible. I'm excited about the new members that we're getting into office. And like I said, veterans on both sides of the aisle makes me very excited. But in the meantime, I think there's some things we can do at the state level in Wisconsin uh, that can revitalize our long, proud history of leading the country when it comes to political transparency and reform. I myself am in favor of things like final five voting. There is an argument that you could actually impose term limits on uh, federal candidates for office or the members of the congressional delegation from the state legislature, though it's been litigated uh, in the courts and Colorado had an experience with this. There's some simple things we can do to enhance transparency in our elections uh, going forward. So I don't think we should just wait and for this entire problem to be fixed from the federal government. And the final thing I'd say is beyond the big ticket items like term limits or lobbying reform, there's a lot of more um, niche issues like reforming the way the committees are structured, uh, collapsing the appropriations committee into the authorizing committee, reforming the budget process, moving to a biannual budget, having a balanced budget amendment, doing no budget, no pay so members can't get paid when they don't actually pass a budget on time. There's a lot of stuff 
in that department that I think we can actually fix over the next 12 years. Um, talking about healthcare, um, your party has consistently campaigned and worked to um, overturn the Affordable Care Act. If that is thrown out or overturned, what is the replacement? There was a, a town hall here in Sister Bay um, where our local assemblyman, Joel Kitchens, was questioned by his previous assemblyman uh, from that seat, uh, Gary Byes, who was saying that we need to throw out um, the Affordable Care Act. And Joel said to him, well, I, I don't love everything in Affordable Care Act, but honestly, Gary, we haven't, we don't have a Republican answer. What is the Republican answer taken away? Or what would you see as things that have to be part of that answer if it were taken away? Well, first of all, let me say, I think Joel is doing a phenomenal job. I think everyone in Door County knows Joel by now and knows that he is a an honest, sincere uh, public servant who has proven his willingness to uh, work across the aisle, particularly when it comes to clean water issues. He's very thoughtful. He knows a ton about education, too. And I just think he is, is one of the best legislators we have in the state of Wisconsin. So I, I really salute Joel for everything he's done. Uh, second thing I say is I think we need to recognize how absurd it is that we're, we're in a situation where we're allowing the courts to adjudicate the future of health care in America. That tells you that the legislative process has failed, right? Uh, either because we haven't come to an agreement on reforming our healthcare system or because the law itself was written in such a vague way as to create an opportunity for the courts to weigh in. And that was really one of the fundamental problems with Obamacare is that a lot of the law was just a grant of authority to the executive branch and asking them to fill in the blanks later. That's a bad way to run a railroad. And that creates a situation where it all depends on who controls the White House, right? You can ping pong back and forth between dramatically different interpretations of legislative authority and regulatory power. And that creates uncertainty in our healthcare system. And as I said before, it creates an opportunity for lawsuits. When the reality is Article One, the legislative branch, should be the branch that is reforming our healthcare system. So what does the fix look like, in my opinion? Uh, one, I think we have to start from the bipartisan shared principle that we are going to protect people with pre-existing conditions. I think that has become a shared starting point for both parties, and I think we can do it, and we can do it in a way that also allows us to reduce costs uh, over the long term. Uh, I'm proud to, to be a co-sponsor of the Pre-Existing Conditions Protection Act. I think we all need to come together to make sure that no one has the rug taken out from under them. The second pillar of the replacement, in my opinion, is us to demand radical transparency when it comes to hospital bills, and healthcare prices, right? Because the fundamental problem with healthcare right now is you have no clue what it's going to cost when you go in for a service, and therefore you can't shop around. You can't act like a consumer, and therefore costs go up and up and up. I would add on to that the fact that we should eliminate surprise billing. No one should go into an emergency room, and because they have a doctor that's out of network, be saddled with a $20,000 bill. Afterwards, I have legislation on that, and we can demand transparency on drug pricing and reduce the cost of drugs. So pillar two is drug pricing which points to pillar three, I think, all the creative ways in which we can leverage technology and innovation to cut out the middlemen that make healthcare less patient-centric and more administrative-centric. So one idea that we could lead on in Wisconsin is the notion of direct primary care, which shouldn't be regulated as insurance, which would disintermediate a lot of people standing in the way between a doctor and a patient, I think, improve healthcare outcomes. Another area where we can innovate, I think, is on telemedicine. If you talk to Door County Medical Center, They'll say that one of the positive externalities of this crisis is that we have made phenomenal advances in telemedicine. If we get the reimbursement rates right, I think we in Wisconsin can lead the world when it comes to telemedicine. And that opens up a huge host of opportunities for our rural areas. And then beyond that, I do think we have to find a way to get towards universal coverage. I just don't think a government uh, takeover of healthcare is the best way to do that. I think that would actually destroy coverage for the over 100 million Americans who rely on employee-based plans or union-sponsored plans. And so I think we should avoid that at all costs while opening up opportunities for Americans, particularly young Americans, to get on the individual market and have a variety of choices when it comes to coverage. Okay, so there was, that market existed before Obamacare. Um, you had the choice. It's just too expensive. So when you say it's easy to say, like, I think we need to get to universal coverage. But if you say it's not going to be you don't want it to be from the government, like the private sector has been available to fill that void for decades and hasn't. So what how would you make that happen? So one thing you could do. So first of all, you have to ask yourself, why didn't the exchanges on Obamacare really work the way they're intended? And it's a sound idea, right? Having an exchange that's delinked from employee sponsored 
healthcare. So you can get coverage that follows you throughout your career. Because one of the things, I, Miles, I don't know your age, but I assume you're younger like me. Um, you know, one of the things about our generation is we are going to change jobs on average for five years. So that old model where you work in the same factory for 40 years and your healthcare stays with you the whole time, we're going to need something more flexible. So one thing you can do to get young people on the exchange, which they didn't buy into on Obamacare, is to consolidate all of the health savings account options we have into one, right? And I have a bill that would actually expand the amount of money you're allowed to contribute to your health savings account, turn it into a MediSave account, and allow that money to be used by people that's means tested depending on your income level in order to buy coverage on the exchange and then increase the type of plans that are available on the exchange, at least adding one option that's more of a basic or catastrophic option geared towards young people. That way you get more people on the Obamacare exchanges, the exchanges start working, and there I think you start to get increased coverage and costs going down over time. Obviously it's not something that's gonna happen overnight, but I think ultimately that's where our healthcare system has to go. Um, you did say that young people didn't buy into uh, the Affordable Care Act, but a lot of them did. It did expand coverage to a lot of Americans that didn't previously have it. Um, moving- Most of the coverage expansions were effectuated by, by Medicaid expansion by states. Uh, my point was that when it came to the individual market, if you look at the projections that both CBO and HHS said we needed for Obamacare's economic logic to work, by an order of magnitude, young people did not uh, shop on the on the exchange. And uh, why didn't they do that? Because a lot of them did the math and figured out, well, I can just pay the the tax penalty for not getting a plan. And that's actually cheaper than being forced into a plan that doesn't make any sense for me and cost me a ton of money. So my only point is that you have to find a way, particularly for young professionals who tend to think that they're invincible, those without pre-existing conditions, to get them bought into the market and more people in the market will reduce costs for everybody. Um, on economics, what do you, you know, there's a lot of talk about we have the best economy and the Dow Jones is up, but the reality is that the Dow is, uh, in, in my opinion, an imperfect measure of how the economy is doing. It doesn't necessarily trickle down to the average person. What do you look at when you're trying to gauge the, the health of the economy? What's the key metric you look at? I don't look at the stock market. I don't. I, I agree with you 100% that I think that is a an imperfect measure at best, uh, and it's one that's increasingly disconnected. I think from reality for most Wisconsinites. My primary metric is listening to people in Northeast Wisconsin, and I try and you know apply that same Lance Corporal test. It's what is your your sort of average working class family in Northeast Wisconsin, or even in my home neighbor neighborhood of Alloway. What do they care about, right? And I think we tend also to focus too much on the metric of unemployment without paying as close attention to uh, labor force participation. And when you start to dig into those numbers, you really realize that, okay, uh, we have a lot of people that have opted out of the workforce and we need to figure out a way to get them into the workforce. But honestly, the the economic metric that may sound non-economic that I actually think is upstream of all of our workforce and our economic challenges in in Wisconsin is an education metric. I actually think that uh, the fact that six out of 10 Wisconsin kids can't read at grade level should concern all of us. Because if you talk to, let's say, the local 400 guys, the pipe trades in Kona, or if you talk to, you know, fancy businesses in Green Bay, like Schreiber, um, what do they want more than anything? They want 18, 21, 22 year old kids that can, that can work hard, can pass a drug test and can read and do basic arithmetic. And if they have that F, that work ethic, they can get all the on the job training they need to make a ton of money. But if our educational system, which also happens to be the great equalizer in our society, where no matter what your socioeconomic background, you know, no matter what the color of your skin is, we give you an opportunity to succeed. If we're not equipping those kids with basic skills, well, then we're going to have a heck of a time trying to help people to get to a point where they can even invest in the stock market or buy a home when they want to start a family when they're 25, 30 30 years old, let alone be able to afford a a cottage in Crivets where they can hunt uh, when they have time off. So I tend to think that education is the leading indicator for where we're going to be economically, you know, a decade down the road. You mentioned that you, you listen to people. Um, so when you go back to even pre-COVID times, what was your gauge on the economy? Um, obviously, COVID had changed everything, but what was your gauge on the economy then, talking to well, like average the people? I, the, thing, the thing I heard the most was, you know, people, I think, were cautiously optimistic. If you talk to employers, they would say a version of what I said before, which is, hey, 
we want to hire more people. We're feeling good. We want to expand, but we just can't find people. We can't find people that can pass a drug test, that have the basic skills, or that are willing to show up to work every single day. So our fundamental limitation was a human limitation. It was a workforce limitation. And then I think if you talk to sort of, uh, you know, Wisconsin families, they'd say, okay, yes, yes, we have more cash in our, our pocket. We like, you know, that we got an extra $2,000 for the tax cut. But it just seems like the cost of everything is going up, right? And so that's healthcare costs primarily, which we talked about before. That's also the cost of education if they want to save and send their kid to college. And right now we're seeing that a lot of colleges that are doing distance and, and digital learning are still charging a full tuition and it's housing costs, right? What's the affordable housing that we that we have in, in Green Bay and throughout Northeast Wisconsin? So that to me is, is an even bigger economic concern than what the Dow Jones is doing on any single day. Um, moving on to climate change, do you agree that humans contribute to climate change? And if so, what do you think is the best option uh, as a nation to, to combat it? I do. And I think we need to look at where we've been successful in recent decades in reducing emissions. And the U.S. has dramatically reduced its emissions from 2005 to 2017, uh, more than the next 12 uh, emission-reducing countries combined. And that's largely been a product of technological advancements, particularly related to natural gas uh, development. And I think that points the way forward, which is if we make a generational investment in technological partnerships between the federal government and the state governments, I think we can start to see some exciting things happen that are not only good for our environment, but good for our climate. Uh, I just introduced something called the Endless Frontiers Act with uh, Representative Rokana, a Democrat from California. It's bicameral. So the, the Senate co-sponsor is Senator Chuck Schumer, if you can believe it. Schumer and I are working together on this, and this would be the most significant federal investment in research and development, uh, including advanced energy technology since the Cold War. Uh, the UW system is in strong support of it because it would require the Commerce Department to designate at least 10 regional technology hubs. And I think Wisconsin's ideally positioned to be one of those hubs. Um, and I think this is the way we can win, for example, the race when it comes to nuclear technology, a highly clean form of energy. And we know that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to corner the market on advanced nuclear microreactors. We can't let them do that. I've also introduced something called the Nuclear Energy Reactor Demonstration Act. That's the NERD Act, uh, a bill that would strengthen our uh, nuclear energy competitiveness uh, and direct the Department of Energy to work with private sector partners to complete two advanced reactor demonstration projects. So uh, those are two areas where I think we have a huge opportunity to both combat climate change and also support our economy. And it also happens to be good for our foreign policy. Um, <clears throat> and you mentioned nuclear energy. That's, um, I guess, the, the the big drawback on that is over years has been like, how do we do that safely? Um, because it generally goes very like flying in a plane. Most of the time, it's incredibly safe. But when it goes wrong, it goes dramatically wrong. Um, any concerns there? Uh, you you have said, and a lot of people say that nuclear energy is kind of the key to really reducing um, our impact on the planet for a lot of people, not everybody. Um, but how do you do that and do it safely and, and make people feel safe about the idea of expanding that technology? Well, in America, I think that the bigger problem is not necessarily been safety. It's just been that we've disinvested in nuclear technology. We see that in Kiwani, obviously, within our own backyard. Um, I think if you would talk to uh, even people like Bill Gates, they would say we're at a point technologically where we can do everything that is necessary to make sure that this is safe. You know, we should always be vigilant. You know, we don't want to tolerate any dereliction of uh, safety concerns, but uh, I do think we're at a point where we can implement uh, safely nuclear technology. And particularly as we go to smaller reactors, uh, that opportunity gets pretty exciting because not only is it environmentally friendly, but for example, you can take military bases off the grid, which is vulnerable to cyber attacks, and give them their own separate power sources. So it also makes us more resilient as a country. Now, I'm not suggesting we put all of our eggs solely in the basket of nuclear technology, I am for an all above, all the above approach that includes things like carbon capture uh, technology. Uh, and I just think to the point of the Endless Frontiers Act, we're going to need that investment of research and development to figure out what are the technologies of the future. I'd love to see solar and hydro occupy a greater position in the landscape of sustainable energy, but that requires investments in battery storage technology that we don't have right now. So it's not nuclear and nothing else. It's, but I do think nuclear is the most promising of the many technologies we have right now. How do you get your party on board with some of this? Because there's a lot of people who don't talk anything 
approaching what you're talking about uh, on the Republican side when it comes to climate change and getting away from fossil fuels? Well, it's changing, you know, and, and I think maybe it's not changing fast enough for, for people, uh, particularly for people in Door County uh, who have a deep commitment to our environment uh, and care about this issue. But I just would highlight the fact that even the Republican um, uh, minority leader, Kevin McCarthy, uh, wrote an op-ed, I think, last year talking about the importance of taking climate change seriously and outlining a variety of bills that we are introducing in Congress. I just was part of something called the China Task Force, which was primarily an effort to kind of look at the threat posed by China, but it definitely had an energy component to it. And I think as we get younger members in office, uh, you know, I was the second youngest Republican or member of Congress uh, overall. In the last Congress, the youngest was Elise Stefanik from New York. Uh, She takes this issue seriously. I think if we get newer, younger members in office, there tends to be a generational split uh, on this issue. And I think for my, my older colleagues who might ignore it, they do it at their own peril. Uh, and this is just an important issue for my generation, uh, caring about the environment in general. And so I do think it's changing. It might not be happening fast, fast enough, but there has been some interesting progress in recent years. Um, finally, and I know you've given me much more time than and we agreed to, so I appreciate that. Um, you've talked a lot in your time in, about changing the tone of politics. It's easy for people to talk about that um, on both sides and then go back to the same old ways. Early in your time, you were a little critical of the president. You actually got a little bit of like a press for even mildly criticizing the president. Um, <laughs> Is it? But when you do that, since then, you've you've generally stood by the president. Um, Is it possible to change the tone of Washington when you have a president who turns it up to 11 pretty much every single day, um, recently talking about locking up the governor just days after threats are made on her life, the governor of Michigan days after threats were made on her life? Um, Can you change the tone and still tolerate some of that language at the very top of our political? Well, let me first tell you my approach, which I've tried to adopt the same approach since I was first elected four years ago, which is I try and analyze policy and not focus on all day on personality or Twitter. Uh, So if the president supports a policy that I think is good for Northeast Wisconsin, I will work with him on that policy. So for example, rebuilding the Navy, making sure that Marinette Marine won the frigate contract was a top priority for me. And I've worked very closely with the White House on that. And I'm pushing back on China more broadly. Where I disagree with the president, as I've done on multiple issues, whether it's 232 tariffs, whether it's emergency authority, whether it's recently the decision to uh, pull all our troops out of Germany. Uh, I will be honest about that disagreement. I've told the president directly about those disagreements, and I've worked across the aisle uh, with Democratic colleagues to do things like ensuring that uh, we have a consistent troop presence on the Korean Peninsula or in Eastern Europe. Because in my opinion, it's about the country and it's about policies that are good for the country. It's not about me as a personality. It's not about the president as a personality. It's not about Schumer. It's not about McCarthy. It's just about the country. And I know that angers people that wishes I, I, I were more of just a reflexive partisan or I spent all my time on social media yelling at people. But I don't think that's good for Northeast Wisconsin. And I don't think it's good for our politics more broadly. To your question. Yeah, it's difficult right now to have a more measured approach. Uh, it doesn't seem like anyone's interested in a nuanced opinion on a complex policy issue. And I think increasingly too many Americans are getting seduced by the tribal blood sport that is American politics. But I fundamentally believe that here in Northeast Wisconsin, we're better than that. And that most people on the right and on the left are desperate for a return to a moment where we can have disagreements without demonizing the other side. And that politics doesn't infuse everything we do, right? When I go to a Packer game, I don't want that to be a political exercise. I want to put down politics and I want to just, you know, have fun with my neighbors in Northeast Wisconsin. It doesn't need to be a political thing. And as evidence that that is true, let me just say that when the Dork County Republican Party office, Surgeon Bay, was defaced and vandalized in the middle of the night, I went up there the next day and I expected the graffiti and the vandalism to still be there. But within minutes and hours, people had come to help clean it up. There was a couple that was having breakfast across the street that wanted the jeans. They finished their breakfast early and they came across and they started helping out. Someone ordered pizza for the volunteers. Someone brought beer for the volunteers. And these weren't committed Republicans or, you know, all Trump supporters. This was just citizens in Sturgeon Bay that don't like the idea of vandalism or 
political beliefs being a cause for, for getting attacked. I think that represents the spirit of Northeast Wisconsin. And I try and conduct myself in a way that accords with that spirit of Northeast Wisconsin. And that's why in my last campaign and in this campaign, you haven't seen me do anything negative, right? I'm doing a positive campaign. I'm talking about what I believe in. I'm talking about what I want to happen for Northeast Wisconsin. I'm not trying to tear down my opponent or the other side. It's all about what's good for the country and what's good for Northeast Wisconsin. Yes, I'm a conservative. I have conservative beliefs, but I'm willing to work with anybody if it's good for the country in Northeast Wisconsin. Um, and just to, to go back to that, is that possible, though, when like it, it's nice to say, all right, and I've done this many times of like, I want to get off Facebook, I'm going to get off Twitter. But it's but when the president actually like puts policy out on, on Twitter and, and makes it over Twitter, you it's, it's harder to ignore that as both a reporter and a citizen. Um, and when he makes a, the statements that he does constantly, like you can talk about toning down and you can talk about not wanting to discuss politics in at the sporting event or in the office and all these other areas. But when it's just the, the, the constant fire hose at the top, like, is is that possible for for the other people to change I it? I think it is. I mean, look at the last four years at a time of intense division. I mean, think of everything we've been through. Right. I mean, and I'm not saying a pandemic. I mean, we had impeachment. We had, you know, it, it, we've forgotten all the different, you know, uh, sources of division over the last four years. We have still been able to make remarkable progress on certain key issues. For example, the national security stuff I work on a lot. I mean, we have seen the biggest reorientation of U.S. foreign policy since the end of the Cold War, and it's going to outlast Trump. It's going to outlast my time in office. It is going to be a generational challenge. We're making remarkable progress diplomatically, convincing our allies to agree with us when it comes to the future of the Internet. 5G technology. Uh, I just, if you sort of peer below the headlines for a bit, you will see that there are a lot of good people working together and making progress in a very difficult time. Maybe that sounds Pollyannish. Uh, maybe that sounds naive, but I, I, I've seen it. I, it's not perfect. It can be ugly at times, but I've seen it. And I think we need more of that. And I'm committed to being part of that. Well, Congressman Gallagher, thank you so much for your time and for talking to the, the listeners of our podcast and the, the Peninsula Pulse newspaper. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Congrats on the, uh, the five-month-old. I need all your tips. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.